0: The Conspiracy Show with Richard Saron. Hey, welcome aboard. Good to have you with me. And uh, also, welcome aboard to WEZU FM 95.9 in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. I want to also, just a little programming note here, Uh, normally the second program of the month... Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, joins us for the first half of the hour. And uh, Rosemary isn't with us tonight. Uh, she will be with us for the full hour next week. Uh, we're going to do a whole hour. We just thought we'd uh, we set that aside. And uh, she's got a new book out, dealing with afterlife, uh, dream messages from the afterlife, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be a, a really powerful hour. So we're going to move Rosemary into next week. So you want to be listening for that now. This next hour, we're going to be talking about something that's, I know, near and dear to many of your hearts, and that's professional sports, whether it's football, basketball, uh, hockey, golf, you name it. And uh, my guest really, I think, has tackled, uh, pun intended, a pretty important explosive topic here. Others have gone down this road, and, and a price has been paid for taking on big professional sports, uh, this is actually Brian Toohey's second uh, book in, uh, in this regard. This one is entitled Larceny Games, Sports Gambling, Game Fixing, and the FBI. And uh, previously, uh, Brian wrote, The Fix is In, the showbiz manipulation of the NFL, MLB, or Major League Baseball, the NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. And uh, it's always uh, great to have uh, Brian back on the program as we discuss sports gambling, game fixing, and the FBI. Brian, how are you?
1: Fine. How are you doing tonight,
0: Richard? I'm very well, thank you. So, uh, you, you, you I mentioned that you know that others have have, have taken on uh, you know organizations like the NFL and paid the price. In fact, you begin Larceny Games with such a story. Tell me about this individual uh, who I guess was sort of you. I guess you sought his counsel when you started to write this book because he had also tried to cover sort of this area with the NFL and sort of paid a terrible price.
1: Yes. The author was Dan Muldea. He wrote a book called "Interference: How Organized Crime Influences Professional Football." And Dan, like myself, he's not a sports writer, and he still went after the NFL. He did. He was into investigative reporting. He used to do books about organized crime mainly, and he would deal how they got into the Teamsters and how they got into Hollywood and that sort of thing. And so he decided to go after organized crime and the NFL and. When he finished writing his book, which came up back in 1989, the NFL literally hired somebody to do a hatch job and write a negative review of the book in the New York Times. And that, according to him, cut his legs out from under him, cut legs out from underneath the sails of the book, and literally his career never recovered. Even though he sued the New York Times and it took a, a, this court case all the way almost to the Supreme Court, um, he still wound up losing and it affected the way he viewed the rest of his career. And so when I started writing this book, he was one of the people I sought out to talk to and you know, get some information from. And he literally warned me, don't write this book because they're going to do the same thing to you.
0: It sounds from the description that you gave that the, the National Football League almost has a secret police or an intelligence division. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yes, it's a very fair. They have what they call every league has what they call a security division, and this is staffed with former members of the FBI, the CIA, the DEA, Secret Service, law enforcement, and even though these people don't possess police powers, you know, they can't make arrests, they can't do wiretaps, their job is basically to keep things quiet, as far as I can tell. Their job is to keep things as under wraps as they can so the leagues don't get black eyes over all these different sort of scandals. And these are the type of guys who went after Moldea, and these would probably be the guys, if they decide to go after me, who will be on my case.
0: You also pointed out in the, in the book that uh, the late Howard Cosell, was a, a big fan of Howard Cosell, and he did uh, these uh, weekly commentaries for, for ABC. Very outspoken, obviously, those who remember uh, Howard Cosell, and was often, particularly towards the end of his career and end of his life, very critical of the NFL. What did the NFL do to Howard Cosell?
1: Well, it wasn't just the Howard Cosell. The NFL, when they hired Pete Rozelle as commissioner back in 1960, Pete Rozelle's background was public relations, PR. And he basically created this machine within the NFL that would monitor everything that was, literally everything that was written and spoken about the league. And they would create dossiers on the sports writers and that sort of thing. And when the sports writers would write negative things about the NFL, they would hear from the NFL. And Cosell was kind of one of the first guys to make this really public knowledge, and he said, look, they monitor everything I do. They record every show I broadcast on the air, be it through radio or television, and they're watching me, and they're watching all these people. And it's something you have to be leery of, especially back at that time. They kept hiring more and more former athletes, more and more people who had NFL backgrounds as it was, to broadcast their games and cover the sport. And he worried that really the NFL was just controlling the message completely. And there was no outside influence or no outside oversight upon the
0: league. Brian Tui is with us, uh, the author of Larceny Games, Sports Gambling, Game Fixing, uh, and The FBI. Now, uh, Brian, as I mentioned previously, you wrote The Fixes In, The Showbiz Manipulation of the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. Uh, maybe if you could just sort of uh, contrast the two and how you're sort of coming at this from a slightly different angle this time. What did you mean in, in The Fixes In by The Showbiz Manipulation? These what I talk
1: about in the fixes in was how I believe that the major sports leagues will actually manipulate and outright influence the outcome of their own games. And they'll do it because it's a product, their business, and their their product is entertainment. It's not necessarily sport, it's entertainment, and they need people to tune in. They need the television ratings and the advertising dollars that come from that. And so when need be, the leagues will tweak certain games to make sure certain storylines last longer than they should. And the scary part of that is it's not illegal for the leagues to do that. They can completely legally fix their own games. And when I was promoting that book, I have a lot of sports radio show hosts just lambast me for that because they'd say, well, you know, games have never been fixed. How can you say the league would fix their own game when you can't prove that, you know, games have been fixed in the past? Well, that's what I do with larceny games. I said, all right, you guys, you want me to prove that games have been fixed? Here's what I'll do. So what I did is I Went to the FBI and got all the information the FBI had, literally every file the FBI had about investigations into what they call sports bribery, which is game fixing. And I put it all together into this book, Larceny Games. And I think if a person reads this book, they'll come away knowing full well that certainly games have been fixed in the past despite these leagues telling you this hasn't occurred
0: well let's let's uh, maybe cite some specific examples uh, uh, brian is there a, a particular uh let's start with football since we began the discussion about the nfl uh can you can you cite an example uh, of uh a, a, an nfl game whether it's a super bowl game that's been fixed and then maybe perhaps cite some evidence for that
1: well i think one of the biggest things that i found when i was digging through all these files Was the NFL, for example, says they've never had a game fixed ever by anyone, not organized crime, not by gamblers, no one. And I found a file dating back to, I think it was 1962 or so, where this uh, owner, um, what's his name? I just blanked out Harry Weisberg. He was the owner at one point of the Detroit Lions and a co owner of the Washington Redskins, and he was founded basically what became the New York Jets and the AFL. And this owner went straight to the FBI one day, walked into their office in New York City, and said, look, I know my team through last week's game. And he said, and I know gamblers are influencing the outcomes both in games in the AFL and in the NFL. And the funny part of it is, is at the time in 1962, this was not the FBI's jurisdiction. They had no reason to investigate it because the sports bribery law, which was passed in nineteen sixty four and made it a federal crime to fix a game, to bribe someone to fix a game, and been passed. So the FBI took his information, said thanks, and just basically set it aside. But here you have an owner of three current NFL franchises, a guy who owned piece from it all at one time, and he said games have been fixed.
0: Okay, so uh, in the face. Uh, I don't know what the legal tell you. But these were these were prior to a a law being enacted, which would make such uh, skullduggery illegal, I guess. Uh, On a
1: federal level. Are there more recent... There were, recent... st- were state-level um, offenses. I mean, in New York State, there was you know a law against fixing the game. But he decided, for whatever ah, reason, to right. approach the FBI with this.
0: Are, are there more recent examples?
1: Well, the interesting thing with the FBI files is the fact that they basically end. And that's the scary part for me, is these files they basically start from 1964 when this law was passed but come the 1980s the network of informants and sources the fbi built up dating back to that time period in the 60s had fallen apart and reagan tasked the fbi with fighting the war on drugs so the fbi in a very real sense stopped investigating fixed games because they couldn't get convictions they had a hard time even getting arrests and They said, look, if something falls into our lap, we'll investigate it. But just trying to chase down all these rumors and innuendo when we can't get hard evidence on the fact that games have been fixed. Because if you don't get a wiretap and you don't get someone to confess to it, they got nothing to go on, unfortunately. You can't look at the game film and say, oh, yeah, that guy did that on purpose. That referee made a bad call on purpose because everybody has a bad game. So the FBI had a real issue with it. and. Essentially, quit investigating.
0: Well, excuse my naïveté, but how does one fix a football game? You've got what a, a total of about 52 players on each team. Uh, how does the mo- is it the mob and 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 who do they go to? Do they go to the quarterback? Do they go to the place kicker? Do they go to the referee? How does that work?
1: Well, I think with fixing a game, it's really a crime of opportunity. And you know, people tell me oh it's really hard to fix a game. Well, it was really hard for man to get to the moon. You know, and it was really hard it's really hard to climb Mount Everest. But I don't think it's that hard to convince an athlete, either through blackmail or just through bribery, to underperform in a sporting event. I don't think that's that difficult to do. You just have to have the opportunity and the way to get in. The tricky thing is is we've seen around the world in soccer, in tennis and in cricket recently, I mean as recently as earlier this year, numerous matches have been fixed. And the reason we know this is because Sports gambling is legal in most of Europe, and it's monitored. So what happens in Europe is, with these soccer matches and tennis matches, is they see strange money showing up on games, they see odds moving in ways that they shouldn't necessarily be moving, and then the result follows that money and those odds. So then they investigate that, they follow the money, and it usually winds up being some sort of criminal activity. But here in the United States, at least, sports gambling is, for the most part, illegal, except in the state of Nevada. So literally 99% of the gambling done in the United States is done illegally, and no one's monitoring it. Yet, billions upon billions are being wagered on these games.
0: Brian Tui is with us, the author of Larceny Games. When we come back, we'll talk about the uh, Tim Donahue uh, NBA point shaving scandal. Of course, he was a uh, an NBA ref who was accused of shaving points. And uh, also, uh, a story that just broke... Just around the time your book was published, and that was uh, Bobby Riggs, of course, in Billie Jean King, the great battle of the sexes in 1973, I believe, at the Houston Astrodome, and uh, and quite an admission from someone close to Bobby Riggs, just a couple of weeks ago. Back with more of my conversation with Brian, when the conspiracy show continues. Don't go away. Where there's smoke. There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Brian Tui is with us, the author of Larceny Games. A larceny game, a definition uh, from uh, Brian's website, it's a slang term used in the late 50s, early 60s to describe a sporting event fixed by a gambler and or mobster for gambling purposes uh, and to investigate claims... Uh, that uh, these g- various games have been fixed in the various professional leagues. Brian did something that uh, no one has done previously, um, and that is to, uh, you know, go to the FBI and uh, ask the uh, the FBI what it knew with regards to sports bribery violations. And there were 411 files specifically relating to sports bribery dating from 1964 until as recently as 19. 19- Ninety. Uh, now, I wanted to talk you to you about uh, the NBA for a moment, and uh, I, I probably am not pronouncing his name correctly. Is it Tim? Was it Tim Donaghy or Tim Dona Donahy? Uh, I
1: think it just depends on how you want to pronounce it. I've heard it both ways.
0: Uh, now, this was a, a, a former NBA referee. He worked something like seven hundred and seventy-two regular season games in the NBA, and uh, resigned in uh, two thousand and seven before reports of an investigation by the FBI that he bet on games that he officiated during his last two seasons and that he made calls affecting the point spread in those games. What can you tell me about the Donaghy scandal?
1: Well, the one thing about Donaghy is the fact that well, actually two things. One is had the FBI basically not arrested him he'd probably still be an official in the NBA today. He was one of the higher ranked officials they had. And the other thing with the Donahue scandal is the fact that he really wasn't arrested, nor was he charged or jailed for fixing a game. Everybody kind of thinks he was, but that's not the case. He was, he was arrested for gambling charges, but not for game fixing, because neither the FBI nor the NBA really wanted to try to convict him of that, because they knew how difficult of a road that would be, and they had him on the other charges pretty solidly. So a lot of people think he went down for game fixing, but that wasn't the case, What I find really interesting about the Donahue scandal is the fact that it really blows a lot of the myths out of the water about being able to detect a fixed game. And the fact is Las Vegas, which everybody refers to in the United States as being the center of sports gambling, really isn't. And the fact is Las Vegas didn't recognize what was going on with Donahue's games. Despite the fact that he likely was influencing the outcome of these games, Las Vegas wasn't paying attention. They didn't catch it. And the FBI didn't catch it. Nobody was catching what was going on until the FBI stumbled across it in a wiretap and another unrelated organized crime investigation.
0: Did the NBA not want to pursue this because uh, it was too difficult or because they just didn't want the publicity?
1: I think a little of both. I think they realized to prove that he was fixing the game took a lot. And the bigger issue, I think, the more prime issue with the NBA was the fact that it would affect our integrity if they came out and said games were fixed by this guy, and it was over the course of several seasons, then you'd have to to go back and say, well, which games did he fix? Which games did he influence? Did that cost teams wins and losses? Could that cost teams playoff positions? I mean, there was a lot at stake for the NBA, and so they just really wanted to get it out and out of their way as fast as they could and not bring up those sorts of allegations.
0: How widespread is this? Let's talk about the NBA. Uh, You know, was this just a case of one bad apple, or is it a case where there is one Tom Tim Donaghy? There may be four, seven, a dozen.
1: Well, one of the things I bring up in the book is the fact that there was a Hall of Fame NBA referee named Mendy Rudolph. He fixed games. (laughs) I should say he didn't fix games. I shouldn't say that. He was known to definitely be betting on NBA games, and yet this was the guy who literally, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, wrote the rule book for NBA officials, and yet he was a known gambler. He had issues. So he was mentioned in FBI files of gambling on NBA games while he was a referee, and yet he was the guy who wrote the NBA official's rule book. And so, I mean, it's it's not... Donahue wasn't an isolated incident. It was just these other incidents, including Saul Levy and Mindy Rudolph, were forgotten about and ignored and, you know... Over time, these things just have a tendency to go away.
0: So how does it, again, how does it work with an NBA referee, for example? He's betting on games in which he's officiating. And so how does he control the point spread?
1: In Donahue's case, what he was doing was extremely clever. He wasn't calling bad fouls. He was calling fouls more often. And he was calling more obscure fouls that most officials wouldn't call. So he was actually grading higher amongst NBA officials and their little scoring system and making himself look very good, actually, in the eyes of the NBA and their officials by almost overdoing his job. And yet by doing that, he was able to influence the outcome of these games. And the scary part with Donahue was is he wasn't bribed to do this. He basically decided to do it on his own. And that's the thing I think a lot of people get in their head about when somebody wants to fix a game is that you know, some shady character approaches this guy and convinces him to do it. Donahue did it on his own. And it's very likely in the past that other players and officials kind of have the same idea. They're like, you know, if our team's going to be bad and we're going to lose, I'm not I make a little extra money on the side by gambling on this, by betting on these games when I know I can influence the outcome
0: in my favor? In in your previous book, The Fixes, In, you, you spent some time talking about Michael Jordan, who, of course uh it, w- it was known or is known to be to, to be quite a gambler uh is it i, I don't, I don't want to you know cast aspersions on the great michael jordan but are there are there high profile players uh do we know that in the past uh or presently are gambling or are betting on the games in which they are playing
1: i'm certain there are guys today who are doing it I'm sure of it. I mean, if you look up, if you go to Gambler's Anonymous website and you read the characteristics of, like, a compulsive or addictive gambler, they're the exact same characteristics you would want in a major league athlete. I mean, they're really identical. Um, But the question is, is who's doing it? How come, really, since Pete Rose, have we not seen a player, coach, or referee, really, besides Donnie, get busted for having some sort of gambling addiction. I mean, where is it? There's got to be people out there. And in in larceny games, what I found was that amazingly, a lot of the files actually dealt with really well-known named athletes. Some of these guys were Hall of Famers. I mean, guys like Bill Russell, guys like Bob Cousy, guys like Glenn Dawson, guys like George Blanda. I mean, these are guys who are in the Hall of Fame, guys who are considered legends, yet the FBI was investigating for gambling on games and maybe perhaps fixing games.
0: Bobby Riggs, of course, uh, great Wimbledon champion, and uh, I believe at the age of about 55, which at the time seemed ancient, it doesn't seem that old now, but this famed battle of the sexes with Billie Jean King, it recently came to light that, uh, that Bobby threw that match. What do you make of that?
1: Well, Riggs was a known hustler. I mean, that's what he did once he kind of got out of the professional circuit is he started hustling people. <laughs> that was his thing. And if the story is accurate, he got in deep with some mobsters, and the mobster said, the way you get out of this is by throwing a match for us. Now, it's interesting because there's another mobster out there, this guy by the name of Michael Frances, who was the big-time mobster. He actually had a hit out against him, but he became a born-again Christian when he got out of jail. And now he travels to the country, and he talks about his time in the mafia, and he also talks about game-fixing and how easy it is to get people who are jammed, what he calls jammed up, when they have gambling debts, when they have you know, uh, drug problems and that sort of thing, how it's very easy to approach those athletes who are in trouble and get them to fix games to get out of trouble. So his story really kind of mirrors what happened with Riggs, but the interesting thing I find with the whole Riggs story is that it's 40 years later, it's an exhibition tennis match, and yet we still really don't know what happened that day. We can't prove that he fixed the game. It seemed like he probably fixed the match, but he can't
0: prove it. People. And one of the it things that the people with it. That people forget is uh, that, um, that Riggs, uh, before playing King, because she originally declined yep. uh, the match, he played and defeated soundly the top player in the world at the time, the female player in the world at the time, Margaret Court. She was, uh, as I say, the top female player in the world. And they played in May of '73, Mother's Day, and uh, he uh, Riggs beat her uh, in straight sets. I think it was six to two, six to one. Uh, so for those people that think, well, Bobby Riggs was just too old, you know, to beat uh, Billie Jean King, and that's why she defeated him, he still had, you know, he still had the stuff. So is it possible? I, and this was the, I guess, the, the reasoning or the idea was that that Riggs uh, defeated. Uh, court so that people would bet on him
1: yeah, in going into the match of, with King.
0: Point. Now, was he was he sort of uh, at the, uh, was he sort of involved with the mob in over his head and and they made him do this? Do we know?
1: That's again what that article kind of theorizes that that's exactly it that he was in trouble and they needed a setup. And the problem back then was that you know it wasn't tennis wasn't a huge bet upon sport. Here in the United States it was, And this whole event His whole promotion of the event Made it a big deal In fact it's still to this day I think the most attended tennis match In the history of the United States Was the, his match against Billie Jean King At the Astrodome So I mean it, it, they made significant waves And it created significant buzz Interestingly I think is right now in the world Tennis is probably the third most Bet-upon sport out there Behind horse racing and soccer Tennis is more bet upon than the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, any of those. So, it would I mean, be, it would be much, far
0: easier to fix as well, wouldn't it?
1: Well, exactly. When it's a one-on-one competition, it's a lot like boxing or you know mixed martial arts. You only have to get the one guy to get him to throw the match. And the scarier thing, too, now with tennis is they have what they call spot fixing, which is where you don't even have to throw an entire match. You can just throw a particular game, or you can even just throw a particular point within that game, and people can bet upon that and make money off of it. And that's one of the things they've been uncovering in tennis and in cricket, is and even in soccer with penalties, These what they call spot fixes, where it's not throwing an entire match but just causing a certain event to happen within a game because there's so much in-game betting on these sports now, too.
0: Brian Tui is with us, the author of uh, Larceny Games, talking about uh, sports gambling and game-fixing. Uh, in uh, major league sports like the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, even the NHL, our beloved hockey uh, Canadians, is uh, is not uh, immune to this as well. Say it ain't so, uh, Joe. Going back to the 1919 Black Sox, of course, uh, that famous uh, uh, saying when uh, Shoeless Joe was uh, um, I cornered by a young... Uh, Doe-eyed uh, baseball fans say it ain't so, uh, and we and we tend to think that these these uh, uh, you know the game fixes go back to uh, an, an earlier era, like the 1919 uh, Black Sox. But I was interested to learn that um, that the NHL uh, there was a, a famous incident going back to about 1948, I believe. Uh, can you tell me about uh, a, a game fixing in the National Hockey League?
1: Game fixing in the NHL isn't very prominent because it's not one of the most heavily bet-upon sports. And that's, I think, part of the whole deal, too, is if you bet, even today, if you bet an enormous amount of money on an NHL game, people, are their heads are going to turn because they're not used to it. Whereas, like with the NFL, they say literally a billion dollars or more is bet illegally on the NFL every week.
0: A billion dollars a week? Yes. My if word. It's
1: not more. But that's why you can hide money within that illegal system is, you know, you throw an extra million dollars against the billion dollars, no one will notice it. I mean it doesn't turn heads like that kind of money might in an NHL game. But going back to the nineteen forties, yeah, they had they caught one of the members of the Bruins and his name escapes me right now. But he basically told the gambler, uh maybe I just don't do so well tonight (laughs) and we lose. And sure enough he didn't do so well and they lost and unfortunately he got busted for it. Um, but the one more interesting thing I find with the NHL actually is the fact that two of the founding members, um, Arthur Wirtz, whose family still owns the Blackhawks today, and uh, James Norris Jr., who at the time owned um, the Detroit Wet Rings and actually part of the Blackhawks too at the time back in the 40s and 50s, they conspired with a known mobster by the name of Frankie Carbo, and they controlled professional boxing for about 20 years in the United States.
0: Wow. Oh, the, uh, the, the player for the Bruins was Gabby Gallinger. There you go. Uh, Along with um, uh, Bill Taylor. Their careers were cut short when Gallagher and Taylor were discovered gambling on their own teams and banned for life by the NHL. They were reinstated in 1970, and these are the longest suspensions in NHL history. Back with more of my conversation with Brian Toohey, Larceny Games. holes in the darkness the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett Brian Tui is with us the author of larceny games 380 billion that's with a B 380 billion dollars that's the high-end estimate of how much money was wagered illegally on sporting events in the United States in 1999 according to the National Gambling Impact Study Commission taking the same study's low estimate a mere 80 billion into account the figure still dwarfs the mere 2.76 billion wagered legally in the Nevada sportsbooks in 2010 it's also nearly four times the amount of revenue generated by the NFL MLB major league baseball I should say national basketball association and the NHL combined during the 2011-2012 season yet fans are supposed to believe those unaccounted for billions most of which end up in organized crimes coffers, have no influence on professional sports and their outcomes. So, Brian, basically what you're saying is that these professional sports leagues are lying to their fans.
1: Outright lying to them, lying through their teeth to them about all of this. (laughs) And the big thing for me is the fact that right now the state of New Jersey is suing to legalize sports gambling within their state, to allow it... gambled upon like it is in Nevada. And amazingly, the law that was passed by Congress back in 1996 called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act uh, basically deputized the sports leagues to fight this legal battle for the government. And right now they're embroiled in this. And yet all the excuses these leagues make to supposedly try to keep sports gambling illegal in the United States are just hooey. They're nonsense. I mean, they say that if the sports gambling becomes legalized, then all fans will turn into gamblers, when in fact already they know many of the fans are watching because they are gambling. And then they also say that it's going to protect the integrity of the league. Well, if the NFL has never had a game fixed in its history, why would suddenly the legalization of sports gambling in the United States lead to all sorts of fixed football games if it's never happened before? When now, if we legalized it, we would actually have a monitoring system in place that would watch all of the money being wagered upon these games, and you would see strange things occur, and just like they do in soccer in Europe, you could follow that money and see what's actually going on. But right now, because it's all illegal, no one's watching what's going on.
0: Now Brian, as I pointed out, this is your, your second book on this particular topic. You've written other books, but uh, the, the previous one, uh, The fixes in. In. What do you think is worse, uh, a, a league... F- uh, manipulating the outcome of a game for showbiz reasons you know if we if we drag this 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 uh, series on the final for seven games it'll be more dramatic it'll be a greater narrative uh is that worse or is the idea that certain players or or officials are betting on the games in which they're involved and somehow trying to either shave points to affect the spread or even affect the outcome of a game? What's, what's worse, the showbiz manipulation or the gambling?
1: That's a very good question, Richard. I, ne- I never really thought about it, to be honest. I mean, either way, I think it affects what well, – the problem, I think, what it is is many fans assume these sports are pure and they're good. And they assume that because if they were in the place of those coaches or those players that they would give, a, you know, the clichés, they give 110%, take it to the next level each and every game, that they don't suspect anything like this could possibly happen. So even if, if it's the league doing it or if it's gamblers doing it or the players doing it on their own for gambling purposes, either way it's striking at the integrity and the purity of these games. And I think fans have to take off that fan hat and look at these games as a business, look at these players and coaches and referees as real people and recognize that they do have problems, they can be blackmailed, they could be greedy, and that uh, there's a lot of corruption going on, and yet the sports media world doesn't do enough to really investigate it.
0: Or, or quite the opposite. Uh, they're, they're working overtime to bury it. Exactly. All right, we'll take a timeout. We'll come back. We'll get to some calls. Keith in Rochester is uh, holding on, wants, a question, wants to ask you about horse racing, and uh, we'll continue to discuss sports gambling game fixing in professional sports hey we just welcomed a new affiliate from uh, from north carolina i know nascar is, is big down there so we'll uh, we'll chat about that as well with brian tui don't go away
2: Question everything.
0: This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Seret on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. We're talking about uh, sports gambling and game fixing in professional sports with uh, Brian Tui, author of Larceny Games, and uh, on on the website larcenygames.com. Uh, there is a, um, a, a button you can push. It takes you to, uh, something called Racket Squad. Uh, this is fascinating, Brian. I mean, back in the day, as you say, uh, you know, sports fixing or, or game fixing and gambling, uh, in, in sports was such a, I guess, a commonly understood part of the landscape that they actually, uh, created a comic book series specifically about that. It was called The Racket Squad. I'd never heard of this uh, publication.
1: It wasn't specifically about game fixing. It was about law enforcement. But, yeah, there was four episodes, four issues devoted to fixing of basketball games and fixing of uh, boxing matches.
0: All right, let's say hello to uh, Keith in Rochester, New York. Keith, welcome to The Conspiracy Show.
2: Yes, thank you. For the last 37 years, I have had an avocation for horse racing, and I have developed some successful handicapping methods. Uh, that have held me really in good stead. Like everyone, I've lost money, but I've also made some uh, goodly money, and I have the IRS statements to prove it. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: my question is when I lose, I always figure exactly that, that my handicapping has let me down. And I wanted to uh, ask your guests for someone like me, who, uh, to use the old parlance, is a rail bird, what would I need to look for in so far as games that are fixed. Uh, I'm just saying, without being naive and foolish, I I don't believe I've ever come across a a fixed race, and uh, when I lose, I lose, and when I win, I win, but um, I really uh, don't, uh, uh, as I contemplate and look at the daily racing form and individual track programs, I don't ever figure, and I understand jockeys and so on being gotten to as such, but I just simply handicap and wing it and uh, don't let the idea of anything being fixed uh, get in my way. And I'm just wondering, for a guy like me, uh, 37 years, I just picked it up when I was 20 and a half years old, what I should be looking for uh, if, in fact, I'm so naive that uh, I really am dealing with fixed races.
0: All right, Keith in Rochester, thanks for the call. Great question. Brian?
2: I guarantee Keith has seen a fixed race and just not
1: known it. I have many, many, many files from the FBI about them investigating fixed horse races, and the reason they can fix horse races, and the reasons they do is because the horses don't talk. The horses can't <laughs> tell you it's been drugged. You know, the horse can't tell you that somebody you know electrified it or shot him up or what have you. But these guys were so good at fixing horse races that they wouldn't just you know make number two win they would fix it for the trifecta, which is like the first one, two, three horses to finish, or even the superfecta, the first one, two, three, four horses to come in a particular order. That's how good they were at fixing races. And it's something that still occurs today. The FBI still actually investigates numerous horse racing leads because it's you know, they run the horses for the money. They run it for the gambling. And one FBI agent actually told me, a former FBI agent told me, he goes, you know, in New York, um Fixing races is so prevalent that sometimes you can go to a horse race, and there'll be two competing teams basically trying to fix the race, and nobody wants to win it. It's like the horses are almost running backwards because the jockeys are pulling back, and the horses so hard.
0: I have to tell you, I, I went to—I won't tell you where—but I went to a small track once, and uh, it was—it uh, was a harness race. And uh, I swear, uh, it was the guy that I bet on, or the horse that I bet on, I swear that the jockey was, uh, or the harness driver, whatever you call it, was digging his heels into the Yeah, dragging the, the seat, yeah. <laughs> and I, someone said, what's he saving it for? And someone else said, for the fourth race. Uh, but, what, what, where is the, the, the fixing more prevalent, in thoroughbred or harness racing?
1: Uh, you know, the files I had covered both. I mean, were, it was basically if there was money to be made, and that's the thing, that's one of the reasons I point out how much money is gambled upon these sports, is you know, money breeds corruption. No matter what it is, if it's sports, if it's government, if it's unfortunately religion, if it's big business, money breeds corruption. So if there's money to be made, there's enough greedy people out there they are going to figure out a way to use that money to make more money. And when gambling's involved, that's the best way to do it is to make sure you got that betting edge, and that's many times by fixing the match
0: uh you talked about um we talked about i think boxing very briefly and 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 uh that again i mean this has been immortalized in movies there was uh, i think it was the last movie that that uh, humphrey bogart ever made it was 1956 it was called the harder they fall it was based on a on a book and a uh, true story based on the true story it was uh, uh a fighter it was a primo uh, carnera primo carnera primo carnera uh who um, i guess was sort of you know, uh, taken over by uh, uh, the the mob or fell into the wrong hands, and they ran up this incredible record that he was like, he was a giant.
1: This guy. Well, that, I that was the funny thing with Primo is he was something like six foot six, six foot seven, and this was back in the like 20s or 30s when people weren't normally that large. So I mean, he looked like he could hit you and hit you hard, but the fact was is he punched like a kitten, I guess. And what the mob did is they brought him over from Italy and literally fixed every one of his matches until he got and won the heavyweight title. Every match. Wow. The couple that they didn't fix, he lost. <laughs> so they had to keep fixing him until he won the title. And once he won the title, then they bet a m- bunch of money against him and let him fight a real fight and he lost.
0: Wow. Uh, and again, we tend to think that the, these... Th- this. Uh, happened back in the day, back in the 20s, back in the 30s, the 1919 uh, World Series. Uh, but it, but it, it, while it may happen today, or may you know, it may involve someone trying to engage in some point shaving or whatever. It's not as uh, audacious as it was back in the day. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think the problem is there's no one's looking for it. Sports media is not looking for it. The leagues aren't looking for it. The gamblers really aren't looking for it. They'd rather profit off the information rather than turn anybody in for it. And like I said, the FBI quit looking for it. So the four entities there should be investigating this. None of them are doing their job. But the fact is, I mean, Canadian soccer actually has recently had a couple matches that they suspected were fixed. As recently as, like, this year. And Major League Baseball, I know, investigated fixed games from 2012, just last year. So, I mean, it hasn't really gone away it's just so far under the radar that no one knows it's occurring.
0: What kind of blowback are you receiving? You begin your book talking about this uh, this one journalist who who tried to write a book about the NFL and and uh, it, it it basically ended his career.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, what kind of
0: blowback are you receiving? So far, none.
1: Probably because the book's only been out like a week. <laughs> so so far, I've been okay. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if. Outlets like ESPN, Sports Illustrated, um, Yahoo Sports, and those sorts of things pick up on this and actually do something with it. Because everything I did in the Larceny Games, I mean, it's taken from the FBI files. It's taken from interviews with people who know what they're talking about, people who are former FBI agents who used to be professionals in the sports gambling world. I mean, these are people who know what's what. And all of this information is 100% accurate. Now, does it mean that the files really mean that so-and-so fixed a game or so-and-so was gambling on the game. Not necessarily, because obviously the FBI didn't get a conviction or they didn't even arrest the guy who was involved, but it's very credible information. So I think for all these sports media outlets to take this, see it, and then just throw it aside, I think then you can realize that something maybe is going on within the sports media world, and the fact that they fund professional sports makes them – really an incestual relationship between the two and something to fear.
0: Uh, what about your previous book, The Fixes In, where you talk about the the showbiz manipulation of professional sports where games are fixed uh, to fit a certain narrative? Uh, what, what was the blowback uh, from that one?
1: Well, I know for a fact that there were certain outlets, certain radio shows, and even a television show, that all had agreed to have me on the show and then suddenly like, pulled the rug out from under me and not be willing to reschedule not willing to have me on at all and i'm certain that's because of the contents of the book because i was talking about the fact that these leagues may be fixing these games and this all may be just entertainment and be reality tv which in this day and age means that nothing's really real um and i found it very upsetting because you know i'm just talking about sports i'm not talking about something that's really really important and yet i know just from this experience that there's people out there who probably have the truth on bigger, more important subjects, and if they can't get the media attention, if they can't break through that wall and get the word out there, then nobody knows it exists.
0: You're a uh, you're a sports fan, I'm guessing. Obviously, you know this is, wouldn't be an area that you would investigate. Uh, how has this changed uh, the way you watch games? I mean, let's face it, sports is a religion. I know that's a cliche, but cliches are become cliches because they're tr- they're true. Uh, I mean. How how did this change your sports watching habits, if at all?
1: I can't watch sports really anymore at all. (laughs) Not in the way I used to. But I think that's a good thing. I mean that allows me free time to do other things outside of when I used to spend, you know, all Sunday watching the NFL. I can do other things, spend time with my wife and, you know, enjoy life a little bit more. But I, I think that's what fans need to do, is they have to take off that fan hat and look at this stuff as a business and look at this as a way that these people who run these sports are trying to take every last dime out of your pocket by introducing new jerseys, by introducing new television packages, by charging you $12 for a beer or what have you. They're trying to suck the money out of you because, like you said, it's a religion. They know you're coming to see these games, and you're not going to stop unless you look at it in a different light.
0: Well, what has the reaction been? Maybe it's too early to tell from this book, but the previous book, again, the fixes in. What's the reaction from fans? I mean, you're like the guy who's telling their kid there is no Santa Claus.
1: The amazing thing to me is that every email I get is positive. And many emails I get from people, and I get a lot of emails, actually thank me for doing what it is I did, for writing that book. And, I mean, that makes it feel really good because I know both of these books, The Largeny Games and The Fix this In, no sports writer would have written. It had to be some sort of outsider to do it. I mean, besides myself and that book that Moldea wrote back in 89, Interference, Nobody's written a book about game fixing in the United States. The only other book that's out there is this book called The Fix by Declan Hill, who's a Canadian, and he wrote it about soccer. But no one's tackled the American sports leagues. Nobody's taken them on because I think they're afraid of them.
0: A couple of sports heroes, even outside the, the, the sporting ring, uh, people like Will Chamberlain and Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champion Joe Lewis, were mentioned in those FBI files those are heroes to a lot of people. When you when you come across names like that, to what extent were those legends involved in gambling? Do we know?
1: According to the FBI file, Wilt Chamberlain was much like Michael Jordan, really a compulsive gambler, and he would gamble on anything. And according to the files from the, what they got from their sources and informants, was that Wilt Chamberlain was betting ten to twelve thousand dollars a game on himself. He wasn't betting against himself. He was betting on himself, but he's still betting on basketball games in which he played. which should have kicked him right out of the league, and it should kick him right out of the Hall of Fame, but it hasn't. Um, and the thing with the FBI was is they when they recognized all this information, they didn't care because they weren't the NBA's police force. And if Wilt was just betting on the game, that wasn't a federal crime like fixing the game would have been. So the FBI basically dumped the information. But I think the biggest one for me that I uncovered in – the book and through these files was the fact that Muhammad Ali was likely involved in fixing fights.
0: Oh, say it ain't so, Brian. <laughs> I'm telling you, he was
1: one of my kind of my heroes. He was my my brother's hero for sure, growing up as a kid. Um, but there was probably three fights that Ali actually had fixed in his favor that allowed him one to win the heavyweight championship against Sonny Liston, and then retain it against Sonny Liston, and then probably the last time he won the heavyweight title against uh, Spinks. They were probably all fixed.
0: Wow, I have to have you back on, and we'll, we'll maybe we'll dedicate the show just to talk about that. I, although I don't know if I could bear it.
1: <laughs> <It's just less laughs> it's, I mean, that's the funny thing with these files is a lot of it were heavy-duty names, and it just kind of made kind of blew my mind. It wasn't just you know like obscure people. you be like, oh, okay, see where this guy would fix it. These were prominent athletes, prominent figures, and yet. The U.S. the FBI are investigating.
0: Brian, always fascinating, and I appreciate your time tonight. Larceny games, sports gambling, game fixing, in the FBI—not uh, for the faint of heart in the, uh, in the in the sports arena, that's for sure. And the website larcenygames.com. Uh, thanks, Brian. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Rich. I appreciate
0: it. All right. Thank you, uh, Tim Spreen, for technical production. And uh, back next week, of course, talking about uh, the White House call girl, the real Watergate story with Phil Stanford, Rosemary Ellen Guiley as well. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.